0: Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies, and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Podcast. Welcome to episode 128 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the glacial chasm, Gottlieb.
1: My name this week comes from Twitter, where I got a beautiful response to my moaning about the fact that I've been waiting so long to play War of the Spark that I can't take it anymore. I am ready to insert myself in ice, a la Simon Phoenix, a la Eric Cartman, a la Encino Man, a la 10,000 other science fiction tropes to speed up time and finally get to the release of this set because I am ready to play some standard with these new cards.
0: Dude, you don't even need to insert yourself into ice. I think that's a little over the top. Like you could just take a short nap and we'd be there, you know?
1: Yeah, but I've been feeling this way for a few days now. So now we're in the range of short nap and I do feel like my wife would be a little concerned if I just shut it down for the next two days and like didn't get out of bed. Uh, and I do have some other things to get done, so I can't go quite that far, but, uh, yeah, I think ice would be just fine. Like, nobody would really bat an eye if I was just a huge ice cube for a couple days.
0: Well, it it comes out by the time the podcast is out, man. You have to wait one day, pretty much. And uh, maybe you should have streamed more and got into the streamer showcase thing.
1: Well, so that's that might be my actual biggest regret about not streaming more is that i don't feel comfortable even if they would grant me an account taking one from someone who's out there actually like trying to build an audience that doesn't really seem fair that I asked for one of them although I guess they're kind of unlimited like I'm not really taking one away from yeah someone you're else not in that context all right maybe next time I'll see if I can get myself one of those streamer accounts I do think I might stream tomorrow which would be actually now the past if you're listening to this podcast so this isn't useful information at all and I'll just shut up
0: okay no fair enough well the set is completely previewed And I don't know if you know this, but these are my favorite episodes, our top 10 episodes.
1: Yeah, I enjoy these a lot. And they're also really fun to go back to, I think, and just be like, wow, we're a bunch of idiots. (laughs) Like For people who get a good amount of things right, the top 10 episodes are really humbling sometimes because you just like, you want cards to work out or you just believe in cards and you think they should have a spot and it never quite comes together. This particular top 10 list was really interesting and odd. It felt unlike a lot of the other ones. And maybe I'll save my explanation for why as we kind of get into it. But the way my list broke down was very, very strange. I'll just say that.
0: No, that's that's completely fair. And I definitely went through and kind of double-checked my work and tried to make sure that my list would actually hold up over time. You know, So there is some amount mm-hmm. of accountability there which is kind of cool. So I think I ended up changing like one or two cards and I purposefully did not watch any of the standard stuff for the streamer events just because I did not want to be influenced. I wanted this to be me calling this stuff.
1: Same. Yeah. I I only tangentially checked in through other people's reviews and I I had some opinions on, on what people were getting excited about. I think they were making some of the same mistakes we made with the last preview event where Turns out like really linear things that people just aren't preparing for, especially in a best of one context will often look really good. Right. Uh, Last time we kind of got roped in by Judith. And I think there was a lot of that still happening this time around. So it's an interesting dynamic that comes with these one day previews. Soon we'll be just in the set and then we'll have some real feedback coming back. And uh, it's going to be an interesting one for sure.
0: Well, before, like even before this one, I think I was thinking about our top 10 lists in terms of like, Power level and like whether or not this card could hold up in any standard environment, not necessarily if it will hold up in this specific standard environment. So hmm. for for this one, that's that's why when we were talking about how to frame our top ten lists, I wanted to kind of focus on playability. I don't know if that's actually going to cause a shift in what our top 10 lists look like, but I don't think that there will be things like, you know, Judith at number one, if it's just really bad against mono red, which we did know, but it's not like Judith is not a powerful card because she is.
1: Right. No, no, you're exactly right. And I made the same shift with my methodology for these top 10s. And quite frankly, there's a lot of limiting factors on this format right now. And again, one of them is still mono red, which I think pre-release of War of the Spark is kind of clearly the best deck right now, given just what we're seeing at the top of the Mythic Ladder and these new evolutions in the deck. A lot of them uh, from Lucas failey of course, a member of our Discord who has propagated this 18 land mono red deck, which everyone is just crushing with. So that's a huge limitation on the format as far as I'm concerned. And I think decks have to account for that. And a lot of stuff gets squeezed out when you have that powerful of a limiter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we've said this before in standard in general, like this this format, the the polar ends of the spectrum are by far the best things that you can be doing, whether it's mono red, mono white, or Esper Control, Team Reclamation, Simic Nexus, stuff like that. And there's not a whole lot of room for mid range to exist in the middle. And I think that we're probably going to be having a lot of the same problems, even though a lot of midrange cards didn't end up making my list.
1: Same, same. I'm sure we're going <laughs> to so, talk more about this. So we'll we see. Through.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to start with my honorable mention. And the ba- basically the reason I wanted to do an honorable mention for this top 10 list specifically was that I didn't want this card in the top 10. But I do think that it is worth pointing out that it is going to see play. And I think it should see play in large numbers. And that is Law Rune Enforcer. So I think this card is a big addition to the mono white aggro decks, and they should almost certainly just be playing four copies.
1: Do we still want to read the cards? Or are we still at that stage of the, the preview season where we want to make sure everyone knows exactly what these cards do?
0: So for this one, I, th- I think probably. So let me find okay. it. This is dub for a one, two creature, human, soldier, one tap, Tap target creature with converted mana cost two or greater. So I think this solves a lot of the problems that the white aggro deck had as far as getting through things like Wild Growth Walker.
1: Uh, Yeah, great tool for that archetype. Unlikely to really do much outside of that area, I think, but you're spot on. It answers a very specific problem without weakening the creature density of that deck, which is so critical, especially in the one drop area. If you're going to get your venerated loxodons online in a timely fashion, and you're going to flip your Legion's Landing, you need those one drops. And this is one that just does a huge amount of work for that deck. So significant upgrade, to be sure.
0: Yeah, but you, you know what I mean? It's not really a top 10 card, right? It's not exciting or anything.
1: No, I understand. I understand. It's It's narrow, too. It's unlikely. It's not going to spawn new archetypes. It's not going to see a lot of play outside of that archetype. It just is a really good fit as a one drop that deals with problematic answers to the archetype.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right. What do you have for honorable mention?
1: Well, similarly, so my Honorable Mention, kind of the same type of thing. It's a very narrow card going in one deck, but answers a very specific problem. It's Oath of Kaya. And I think that's just such a huge get for these Esper decks, being able to answer mono red efficiently. That That's a problem card for that deck. Like They can't pressure Planeswalkers anymore successfully without giving you a life boost. It deals with one of their larger threats in Goblin Chain Whirler and obviously goes down the scale as well. Uh, anything besides basically the 4-4 four, four Steamkin. So I, I think this is an important card for the archetype to get. But again, I don't think it's something that like a ton of decks are looking to pick up. You have to be a Planeswalker-centric deck that wants like a slower, more mid-range-ish card. I, I don't know that Oath of Kaya inspires new archetypes, but Esper is certainly very happy to have.
0: Well, there were Orzov decks that were kind of close to getting there, and I think that this is a pretty good pickup for them. And I agree with you. Oath of Kaya did not make my top 10. Uh, having a playable Lightning Helix is certainly very exciting. Like, the the Lightning Helix at 2 mana is too good, and I think 3 mana sorcery speed is completely reasonable. The rider on Oath of Kaya, I think, is relevant because of a lot of white and black decks are almost certainly going to be having some Planeswalkers, and maybe that clause isn't super relevant against Modern red because they're going to be ignoring your Planeswalkers anyway, but the card is still incredibly powerful, and is one of the cards in the set that I think is going to go a pretty long way towards actually giving more decks tools to fight aggressive decks.
1: Yeah. And that's an important thing we need right now. I think if the format's going to get a little bit more to equilibrium, the slower decks need a boost. It was certainly an aggro world previously. And this set tries really hard. I don't know if it succeeds. We're going to see, but it definitely tries.
0: Yep. So uh, my top 10 kind of along with my honorable mention, uh, does a lot of the same things, although I think might show up in some other places, and that's Gideon Blackblade.
1: Okay. So talk about where you see Gideon Blackblade going. Obviously, Mono White is a starting point. We talked a little bit about some concerns there and it being squeezed out by a lot of other cards. Certainly good in post-board games. You see it as a main deck inclusion for Mono White. What else do you see the card do it?
0: I mean, similarly to the, the Oath of Kaya stuff, where it's like, okay, maybe white-black is a thing, I think that any reasonable mid-range deck that does include white will would want Gideon just as a way to actually pressure control, pressure Team erect, stuff like that. But at the same time, like I'm not, I'm not sure if those decks are going to exist, but I definitely do see this card, seeing main deck play in white aggro decks, as long as there are things like Esper Control in the format, which I don't see that deck going anywhere.
1: I agree with you. And you you know what? I actually think I just want to overrule you here. I I think we should read these cards because people are still getting familiar with these. Obviously, we've lived these cards now for a few weeks, and I think we certainly have internalized them, but these are fresh cards. And there are a lot of weird cards here, especially things like Gideon Blackblade. I want to read them all just so people are up to speed. A lot of people listening in their cars, traveling, not able to look things up. So Gideon Blackblade, white, white, one, legendary planeswalker, as long as it's your turn, Gideon Blackblade, four, four, human soldier, creature with indestructible still a planeswalker prevent all damage to Gideon on your turn plus one one other creature you control gets vigilance lifelink indestructible minus six exile target non-land permanent and it is a four loyalty planeswalker sorry to trump your decision but I, I, th- I do think it is important to keep everyone on the same page as we're going through this episode no it's all good so yeah I basically agree with you this is a fine card did not actually make my top 10 list but Figured. it's one of those cards that's sitting it's right on the fringes, and I, I think it's close. And I think it's a meaningful card in the format. Uh, maybe a little bit less exciting just because it's competing for some of the same space. And we talked a lot of, through preview season about how these cards, there's there's a lot of options, right? And one of the important things in this standard format is going to be choosing the right option for a given week. There's no question in my mind that Gideon is going to be the right option at some point. Oh, yeah. All right, your number 10. My number 10 is Grim Initiate. Grim Initiate, kind of an unassuming card. And usually I pass on these unassuming cards and then regret it afterwards. I'll go ahead and read the card. It is a one red mana for a 1-1 one, one creature with first strike. When Grim Initiate dies, a mass one. So you get the 1-1 one, one zombie army. This effect's always good. Doom Traveler is, is such a key key card to have access to. And one of the big problems with aforementioned Judith decks was that they were often forced to stretch into a third color so they could have access to things like this. And if Priest of the Forgotten Gods was looking for sacrifice fodder, it needed something like Hunted Witness to just have enough bodies on the battlefield. I think Grim Initiate moving to red and giving red black decks some of that access might help answer some of Judith's problems. Now, Judith has other existing problems, which I'm going to talk about more when I get to some of my future cards. But If there's just kind of this key little cog that does a lot to smooth out some of the problems that these sacrifice decks are previously having, I think Grim Initiate is probably an important part. And it also lets those decks float a little bit more towards mid-range if they want to. I think Grim Initiate does a lot to block in certain situations where they were previously unable to. Uh, And that's an important distinction to make. So I like this as my number 10 card. Again, kind of unassuming. We're not dealing with real heavy hitters yet, but maybe an important card going forward for a specific archetype
0: that strikes me as a card worthy of an honorable mention it's it's in the same zone right it's in the 10 slot yeah. so
1: it's right on the cusp of being honorable mention and i i think that's fair uh so no objection there
0: well my number 9 gets right into the powerhouses are you ready for this okay nickel yeah, bolas dragon god so nickel I, bolas dragon god in the 9 spot in the 9 slot so i'm going to read this one uh bbbru so five total mana uh, legendary planeswalker bolus four starting loyalty static ability nickel bolus dragon god has loyalty abilities of all other planeswalkers on the battlefield plus one you draw a card each opponent exiles a card from their hand or a permanent they control minus three destroy target creature or planeswalker minus eight each opponent who doesn't control a legendary creature or planeswalker loses the game and i have this at number nine because I'm kind of having reservations about the whole Judith thing, uh, just having flashbacks with like, oh, everyone thinking that like Grixis is going to be a thing. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be a thing. Obviously, Bolas is almost certainly going to be like the headliner of that sort of archetype. It is very powerful, but at the same time, there are a lot of cases for even just being straight to mirror and like not even dipping into red. So I'm actually not convinced that Grixis is going to be a tier one deck, especially since it fits in that mid-range space. but this is possibly the best bolus we've seen, I think.
1: You said so many things that I also wanted to say about this card. I, I think it I think it's very clearly powerful, right? Like nobody is disputing that for even a second, but it exists only in one archetype, Grixis by virtue of its casting cost. And then when you think about the Grixis archetype, like what issues was it previously having? What was it unprepared to deal with? And how does Bolas change that? And I think the answer is it doesn't. Like on its face, this is certainly a better card than Ral, right? I think nobody would dispute that. But when you think about their effect on the battlefield and w- what they do to game state, they're actually very similar. Like plus one, you get a card, minus you destroy something, and then the other minus, you basically win the game. And it's not all that different, even if it's more powerful. So if, if Ral didn't fix previously existing problems for Grixis and make it a tier one archetype, I'm not exactly sure that Bolus does a better job of fixing those same issues. And It's not enough to just be powerful. You have to be able to offer an angle to a deck. And that's something that came up a lot in my list and something I'm really harping on this preview season is that just being an upgrade isn't going to be enough in a large standard with a lot of sets. Uh, It it has to offer some kind of new angle, something that
0: the deck previously couldn't do. And I don't think Bolas is really doing that. Well. I think the plus one is much stronger than Raoul's plus one. I think it goes kind of hand in hand with things like thought erasure and four drop bolus where you're kind of like stripping them of permanence carnival carnage fits into that too. Uh, so just like taxing their resources, like the getting the second card out of it basically is a big upgrade. And I th- like the minus three killing a planeswalker matters a lot too. So I do think it's an upgrade. and I don't think like Ral is, necessarily a better uh, or a good comparison, but I agree that it doesn't necessarily like fix any problems, but it is, it is certainly much better than Rail.
1: Yeah. I'm not saying it's not an upgrade. I would, I would concede that point a hundred percent. It's just about how is it an upgrade and does it change what those decks are previously struggling against? And I think the answer is still no, but w- we'll see. We'll see where Bolas ultimately ends up it feels like it's kind of too powerful to be ignored and people are going to want to play it regardless. So I expect early on, especially this to be a very large part of like week one as people get things figured out.
0: Yeah. So your number nine.
1: My number nine is Blast Zone. Blast Zone, of course, is our new engineered explosives land. I'll go ahead and read that one. Uh, It is just a land. It enters the battlefield with a charge counter on it. It taps for colorless XX tap, put X charge counters on Blast Zone. Three sacrifice Blast Zone, destroy each non-land permanent with converted mana cost equal to the number of charge counters on Blast Zone. I am a huge, huge fan of getting utility out of my lands. I think it's so undervalued historically. When you attach any kind of value to a land, it's worth so much. We saw it with the memorials. Uh, we've We've seen it a bunch of times, but Blast Zone has some tremendous value. And even if it's super expensive, it's offering decks outs to cards that they previously did not have. You talked about something like Demir, And the context I talked about Blast Zone in my article this week was like Blast Zone versus Experimental Frenzy. And granted, it doesn't answer a turn four, turn five, Experimental Frenzy. But oftentimes in the late game where you're going to a top deck war and you spend some turns just at parity, not really doing a whole lot, It's that experimental frenzy off the top that can ultimately damn you. And you could spend those turns now investing in your blast zone, having it ready with four counters on it to proactively deal with that experimental frenzy, which is a play pattern I'm really into. There's also just like aggressive decks with lots of one, two drops. Blast zone's a fine answer there. You never want to give up your land, but when you're facing down you know, five one drops, it's pretty exciting to clean them up with just one land drop, especially, again, as we get to the late game. So I think Blast Zone is important for some strategic options. It's offering decks that previously did not have them. Uh, I am also high on Demir in this set. I think most of the best cards are in that color combination, and there would be some problems for that deck if not for cards like Blast Zone that they can now consider.
0: Not on my list, man. I think you're missing
1: out. I think this is going to be an important one.
0: I think that... The mana bases are already taxed a lot to the point where we don't even see Field of Ruin anymore. And Field of Ruin would have been quite good against uh, a few specific archetypes. It's like the casting costs are very spread out and the card itself is just like very, very slow. So I do think that against like White Weenie, for example, where they do have this plethora of one drops, Blast Zone is great against them. I don't know. I, I don't see this card showing up in like a ton of spots, and I don't think it's ever going to be like, oh, yeah, like Blast Zone was like so efficient and like this great answer to this thing that my opponent was doing. It's like, yeah, if you have slots for utility lands in your mana base, certainly this is one of the considerations that you're you know, going to, to think about or whatever, but I don't think it's ever going to be like, you know, your best card and you're going to be like working hard to like get it in your deck list and it's going to be bailing you out or whatever. I think it's going to be like exactly fine.
1: Exactly fine is okay with me if it's fine in a way that shores up holes that I previously had. And that's what I think this card is ultimately going to do. And I think there's certain archetypes that couldn't exist if it weren't for Blasso. That's my guess right now. Yeah, I don't think that's true. And we'll have to see if that if that comes true. We'll, we'll have to see. I, I, again, I, Demir is something I'm very high on. And I think you do have room in your mana base. In that instance, I mean, if you if you didn't, then you probably should just be playing Esper, right? You get some powerful options, and maybe that'll ultimately be true. We'll see. This is a card I'm really excited about, and going to push as hard as I can to see if I can get value out of it, especially in the early stages where I still expect a lot of aggression.
0: Well, in in the context of things like Demir, the the problem wasn't experimental frenzy. Like, oh, I need to remove this. Like. How Demir decks beat Frenzy before was turning into something like Doom Whisperer or like some sort of threat that just like went over the top of the red decks, and you have that now with all the Amass stuff, and you you have stuff that like you actually want to be playing, not like this kind of junky five mana six six.
1: Uh, that's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. They have upgraded in other ways.
0: So my my Demir decks have had blast zones in the mana base traditionally. Uh, I think they could also be Field of Ruin if Esper and Search for His are things. Yeah, I mean, I, it, you're 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 going to play it some amount of the time. It is going to be fine, but I don't think trying to blast zone away their experimental frenzies is how you're going to win the matchup. Okay, time we will go. see though. On to my number eight, I have Vivian, champion of the wilds. So this is a two R rare planeswalker, Vivian, for starting loyalty. You may cast creature spells as though they had flash. Plus one until your next turn, up to one target creature gains vigilance or reach. Vigilance and reach, sorry. And minus two, look at the top three cards of your library, exile one face down, and put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. For as long as it remains exiled, you may look at the card and you may cast it if it's a creature card. And I think having a three mana planeswalker that, since it has both a plus and a minus, this is going to be like a a formidable threat against control. And the fact that you can go land or elves into this on turn two, get under things like thought erasure and negate, whatever. And you have this thing that is kind of slowly pressuring them throughout the game, I think is going to be just completely awesome for green decks. And before you would say like, Oh, you know, this, this Vivian, all it does is like draw cards or whatever. But like, we've seen that on, on five mana Vivian where that's, her default mode, like 70, 80% of the time. And that card is good enough just as a five mana sorcery. And I think, I don't think that this card necessarily supplants the five mana one. I think that they both work well together and give you a decent amount of card advantage and stuff. And like, certainly the static ability is relevant a lot of the time too. But yeah, overall, I just think this card is a a nice pickup for green decks in general and probably the best green card in the set.
1: I like this card a lot. And it's odd to me that, Nobody else does, I feel like it's just not a card I've seen people hyped about. To, to that effect, it also didn't make my list. So maybe, maybe I should slow down before I chastise other people. But but I do think it's very good. And I think you're exactly right that it doesn't have to be anywhere near as good as regular Vivian to still see play. And that static clause of creatures getting flash is going to be way more important than people think in a lot of spots. I, th- I think that really does matter a lot. It potentially ruins creature
0: combat too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult card to play against. And unless it's dealt with immediately, you never get that free attack again. And it, it kind of sort of protects itself depending on how your deck is built. Uh, but having it be green in a deck with Llanowar Elves, I do think this is quite an important card. There is usually a copy in my green decks, even like Michael Gary style mid-range builds often have a copy, usually one in the main, one in the sideboard. I do think it's quite good in the control context. So yeah, good good call. This probably should have been somewhere on my list. I think this might be the card I regret leaving off the most.
0: All right, fair enough. You're number seven or number eight. Sorry.
1: We talked about it already. Nicole Bolas also had it very high okay. uh on my on my list. I think it's an important card, but not one of the best in the set as I see it.
0: Okay. My number seven is is a five-drop Demir card. Enter the God Eternals, and this is one that I think is going to be a little bit better than Bolus and probably make more archetypes happen. So this is two UUB five mana total sorcery. Enter the God Eternals deals four damage to target creature, and you gain life equal to the damage dealt this way. Target player puts the top four cards of their library into their graveyard. A mass four and. For my thoughts on this, uh, I I wrote an article on Star City Games a couple weeks ago, and if you haven't read it, it, it's basically like all I have to say about this card.
1: Yeah, and you said it well, and I think this card is excellent. The rate is absurd. We talked about context. This fits in the context of the format, giving these decks an out to aggressive red decks, both in the body and in the damage and life gain. This card seems incredible to me, and I think it probably... It does more to create a new archetype than any other card in the set. That's my take on it.
0: Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. And the fact that this gets to actually work pretty well with uh, Dreadhorde Invasion, like if you have a 2-2 army already, this makes it six, that gains you even more life. It's like the game's over already. Like The door has closed against red aggro decks, and that's a good way for you to beat Experimental Frenzy.
1: Yep. No, you're right. And that's a new angle those mass decks have, and I think it's important. Again, if there's something I'm excited about as a new archetype, it's it's probably this Amass stuff more than anything else.
0: Yeah, as soon as that card got previewed, I was just like, "All right, snap it off. Like that is that is my article topic for this week." I was pretty excited that I got to write about this one.
1: Yeah, I was so late on claiming all my article topics. I, all these cards I also <laughs> would have written about, <laughs> I feel like they got snatched up before I got my hands on them, and I ended up writing about things like uh, you know, Spark Double, which Shocker did not make my list. Still a fine card, but uh Next time I'll have to be more on the ball about snatching up these good cards when we're doing preview season. Yep, uh, your number seven. My number seven is God Eternal. Which one do you think it is, Jerry? Mm, guess? I'm
0: guessing Kefnet. Kefnet might it's be bo- higher. It's Bond Two.
1: It, it's okay. Bond Two. Here's my my spiel on God Eternals. I think all of them are being dramatically underrated right now. I think. This clause of being able to put it back into your library, even after it's been exiled, is kind of bonkers. Like, basically, once you find this card, you can make the game all about this card. And it's interesting that Bantu does a nice job of getting you more resources for your future Bantu. If you have good disposable options, you're able to really leverage that. I talked a bit about how Judith decks failed after the release of the last set. And If that's going to change, they need to offer a new angle. They need to offer some resiliency to specifically Cry of the Carnarium. Because if the decks become a problem, you just load up on Cry and the same answer is still there. Nothing has changed. You can't beat that card. If you go one drop, two drop, three drop, and they get cried, you have probably lost the game on the spot. So something has to change about deck construction where they're able to play a longer game or just install some reach. And I think that God Eternal Bantu could do both those things if you build your deck specifically, contemplating the problems the deck previously had. So I'm excited to see if this can offer a new wrinkle to those type of archetypes. It's it's just a good sacrifice outlet, something we've kind of been lacking, and it's an incredible body. Five, six menace for five mana is a totally acceptable rate. It'll block a lot of things very efficiently. I think all of these God Eternals are better than people presently think they are.
0: Yeah, I basically agree with everything that you said about Bantu. I do think that it it is a very strong card, along with all of the other God Eternals. I think that people, for the most part, are sleeping on them. And to kind of double check that, I, I went to Star City and checked the prices, and it's like, yeah, Bantu's 8, Kefnet's 12 or 13 or whatever. And it's like, why? I mean, I, I get that you're not going to play a ton of these in your deck. But I do still think that they're very powerful. The the fact that Bontu gets to like sacrifice lands too, I mean, this ends up being like a very, very huge late game refresh. And then it, it just keeps coming back. They all keep coming back. It doesn't matter what you do, really. And the bodies might not be perfect. Like I, I think, you know, five, six minutes is going to close a game pretty reasonably quickly. Kafnet has flying ronis is probably just going to kill them the turn you cast it or whatever you know like all these are just very very threatening cards and very realistic to just put in your standard decks
1: i think so i also want to mention mayhem devil which isn't a card i've seen anyone mention and i understand why if you look at it on rate in comparison to other three drops it's like oh this is a three three which is it has a very very narrow narrow sacrifice clause. Mayhem devil is one co is black, red three, three. Whenever a player sacrifices a permanent mayhem devil deals one damage to any target, but man, does that give a deck a lot of reach in combination with Bantu. And I don't know if that's the the shift these Judith decks need to take to be more sacrifice focused, to be more priest of forgotten gods focused, to be more mid rangey, to be black, red, and kind of rely on this fireball type combo kill we'll see if that's an actual thing, but it's different at least. And it's also a body that can survive cry. So that's something I'm interested in exploring as we go forward. But on the whole, I just think Bantu is just a solid, solid card. uh, That's going to see a ton of play.
0: I agree Did not make my list. I, I I missed the fact that ma'am devil is any permanent. So again, counting lands, Uh, Mm -hmm. otherwise just kind of like struck me as a, is a weaker Judith, but yeah, maybe not the case. And maybe, there are some combo kills to be had in like the mid to late game. So yeah, I'm interested.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you have a minimum of seven damage, right? If, or maybe six, maybe Bantu can't sacrifice itself. But if you're casting a Bantu with mayhem devil in play, that represents at least six damage every time.
0: Yep. Uh. So where are we at? My number six, uh, I have a God eternal and this one is God eternal Kefnet. So two you four five flying legendary creature, zombie God. Uh, these are all zombies. Well, not, I guess the boar is not a zombie, but the other four are zombies, which is cool. Uh, you may reveal the first card you draw each turn as you draw it. Whenever you reveal an instant or sorcery card this way, copy that card and you may cast the copy. The copy costs two less to cast. And when this dies or is put into exile from the battlefield, you may put it into its owner's library through from the top. So, uh, Kefnet as a four-mana, four-five flyer that is very hard to kill is already pretty reasonable. It, like it, It's hard to kill by, like, lava coil standards, right? And then it's hard to get rid of entirely, even with uh, Veraskas Contempt-type stuff. But if you ever hit a spell and it, it is relevant, I think, like, the, the card just, you know, is bananas. Uh, but for for the most part... I, I wouldn't even necessarily be looking to abuse that clause. Like, obviously, I don't want to play it in a deck that is all creatures or whatever, but I would not be banking on trying to like hit my delver of secrets basically every single turn with this card. It's like you you play this also because the body's relevant.
1: Yeah, four mana four-five flying is just great. It's it's a great sizing. This being the only four mana god matters a lot. That clause is backbreaking in some situations. There's so many cards you could think about revealing that's just like, oh, I basically won the game. Uh, There's actual legitimate infinite combos with God Eternal, Kefnet, if that's something you're interested in. I I don't think you have to go that far. I think it's just a fine card on its face. I'm also very high on this card. And uh, again, God Eternals in general, very high on them.
0: Yeah. So Kefnet was the only one to make my top 10, uh, but it's like, you know, our our top 10 War of the Spark cards, not our top 10 gods lists. So
1: Mm. It's interesting you say that, Jerry. Ten's not a lot. Ten's not a lot. It's not, it's not, it's a very it's a very tight package we have to put together. Uh, and this was a particularly challenging one. What's your number six? God eternal. Do you want to guess this one?
0: Uh, you're gonna say Ronus, aren't you?
1: I am gonna say Ronus. And I think Ronus, again, say I'm not gonna repeat all the same thing about God eternals. I'll read the card. Let me do that first before I go into my spiel here. Ronus is Another God Eternal, another zombie. Uh, it is green, green, N3. and three. And Ronus is a five, five death touch. When God Eternal Ronus enters the battlefield, double the power of each other creature you control until end of turn. These creatures gain vigilance till end of turn. When God Eternal Ronus dies, put into exile, shuffle it, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like discussing Ronus is mostly going to involve me just like stating his card text over and over, which isn't particularly useful. It's just a good add for these mono green aggro decks, which I think were pretty squarely tier two and occasionally fairly well positioned. Uh, sometimes, obviously, they've included a Simic Splash as well, which I think is also fine. This is just a very significant clock upgrade for those decks that needed one little final push to maybe get over that hurdle. And I'm interested in exploring whether God Eternal Aronis is delivering that push.
0: If you're interested in exploring it, does that mean that it should be as high as number six? Well, I was kind of hitting a theme at this stage (laughs) stage of the (laughs) list.
1: No, I mean, it's tough. I I sat down with this list for a very, very long time and really thinking about whether I had the numbers right. And it, it just feels like if we're talking in terms of potential impact on the format, like is this going to push a deck into the limelight? Is it going to change something about the makeup of the present metagame? Then I think it's in the right spot because it has more capability to introduce a new player to the format than most of the other cards in the set, in my estimation. But again, all these, these contexts, there it's very hard to hash out exactly what we're getting to the core of with these rankings. And if you ask me in another moment, I might say, well, you know, it, it doesn't quite rank on power level. So for now, I'm comfortable with it sitting in the sixth spot. Uh, I I get your trepidation, but that was my criteria. I think it just does more to shake up the metagame than a lot of other cards.
0: That's fair. That's completely fair, because if it does hit, it's probably going to hit in a big way. I'm just skeptical that the, the one turn overrun plus like five mana threat left over actually does enough to push this deck into the limelight. So I don't know, I, it, like a lot of cards on this list, it's like a wait and see thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, people have talked about
1: power level for this set and you hear estimations all over the place. Absurdly powerful set, not at all playable. Obviously the truth always lies somewhere in the middle, but for me, I'm trending actually towards the lower side of things. I, I do think this is a lower powered set. Part of that is the context of going into a huge standard format. But there's also just a, not a huge amount of build around that I think can actually hold up in the face of what is currently happening.
0: Right. And the constraints that currently exist on standard are tough ones, possibly tougher than, you know, going back to like energy and hazaret Monored and stuff like that, where it, it is really difficult for a new archetype to actually break in because the things that the decks are doing are just like a little bit too good at what they do. And granted, we're, we're still in like a seven deck metagame or whatever, you know, so right. it's, it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination or anything. But at the same time, it, it does make the bar very high for a new set. Yeah, agreed. All right, my number five, commence the end game. For you, you instant. This spell can't be countered. Draw two cards, then a mass X, where X is the number of cards in your hand. I think that this goes along with Enter the God Eternals and Dreadhorde Invasion as a sort of demure, mid-range, control-y amass strategy. The fact that this can't be countered, I think, is a, a huge part of its playability. And... It's Torrential Gearhulk-esque in that it is six mana. It's going to make a big thing, and normally you're Gearhulking a removal spell, and obviously this doesn't quite do the same thing or whatever, but uh, I do still think that its effect is very, very powerful, will show up in a lot of spots, and even if if this ends up being like a one or two of in Esper or as a sideboard option or what have you, uh, I do think that this card is going to show up places. Agree. Really like it as a sideboard option for the
1: Simic Nexus decks uh, and having a diverse threat suite, I think, is a huge thing for them. As we commence the endgame of our top 10 list, there is a theme which I'm going to push on. And I think we're kind of coming to the same conclusions, just in a slightly different order. But uh, this Amass stuff seems meaningful to me. And Commence the Endgame is going to be a large part of that strategy. And it's funny because I do feel... Again, I I kind of can only use price as a indicator of excitement. Uh, Commence the Endgame is 99 cents right now, which that's probably fine. I, I don't think it's going to be a four of in a bunch of decks, and it's just a rare, and it's hard for modern rares to be worth a ton. But that points to a fairly low excitement level, I think. And this is closer to Torrential Gear Hulk. With uncounterability, than people are giving it credit for. You're right that often the target was of Rask's contempt, but in instances where you were choosing your two, your draw two, you're usually still pretty happy with your Gear Hulk, and this adds another wrinkle to that whole equation. So uh, I- I'm into this card a lot as well. All right, you're number five, God Eternal, Kefnet. We've already okay. talked about this card. But this is this is my God Eternal spot. And like I said, it's weird how this broke down. But I was sitting there staring at this list, trying to move things around. And that's the order I came up with. And I'm like, am I just fixated on God Eternals? No, this is legitimately where I think they rank. Kefnet is the best of them, I'm pretty sure. Based primarily on casting cost for mana gods that are never going anywhere. And are a thing for the rest of the game. Pretty impactful. This one coming with a nice body to block. Also love it. I think it's a, a real game changer for a lot of decks.
0: And fits pretty well with the two amass spells that we talked about. I agree with you. All right. My number four is Uncommon Planeswalker, Sahili Sublime Artificer, one H, where H is blue or red mana, five starting loyalty, Legendary Planeswalker, Sahili. Static Ability, Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 colorless servo artifact creature token and minus two target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact or creature you control until end of turn, except it's an artifact in addition to its other types. So I like this maybe as a sideboard option, but certainly as a main deck option in uh like uh Jess guy tokens deck i know that that list has been running around i wrote about that will pulliam did some work on that list with the the game discord and i like the look of his list a lot and i could also see this fitting in to the drake's deck where you get to play this play some spells and then just start uh making your tokens into hasty drakes effectively and i think that that's really powerful too
1: Yeah, I want to see more from this card before I'm willing to buy into it. I think that I'm not sure it presents a new angle for those decks. Like, is it better than existing options? Is it better than just playing another Drake? In some spots, sure. But on the whole, strategically, I don't know if that's going to be the case. It's fragile because it's a Planeswalker. It can be attacked. The turn you play it, it's almost impossible to get any value out of it, at least in the early game, obviously. As we scale to the late game, you can certainly go Saheli plus spell. So it's got some strikes working against it. But again, as far as an archetype enabler, it rates a lot higher than other cards. Uh, if this token strategy is real, it's probably because of Sahili. I just don't know. Like, they're still the same checks, right? They're still Cry of the Carnarium. And granted, you get to go a little bit larger in these contexts and have your Drake finishers uh, which is nice. And you mentioned Will's List. I like the the look of Will's List because it has that two-pronged plan. It's able to offer the crackling drink endgame as well as that explosive token start. Uh, and that seems promising. So I'm going to explore this card some more, but it did not make my list.
0: Yeah, I, I basically expected that, but I do think that this card is really strong and certainly in the, the Ronis context of it potentially enabling a new deck. Like If you're playing Sahili, you're probably playing it as a four of and Mm-hmm. That is huge.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. We'll see if they're going to hold pace with the rest of the already existing metagame.
0: Yep, you're number four.
1: Commence the endgame. I already talked about it. Any reason why it's a little bit higher? Uh, well, we're getting to a package over on my end again, and maybe I'll talk more about that package as we move to a card we haven't already discussed.
0: Fair enough. Uh, well, that is my number three is Dreadhorde Invasion. One. My number three. We nailed it. Exactly. Wh- 1B Enchantment. The beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life and a mass one. Whenever a zombie token you control with six power or greater attacks, it gains lifelink until end of turn. This is not Bitter Blossom. This is not as good as Bitter Blossom. But I do think that this card can show up in a lot of places. And I think it's going to be... Pretty good at doing the job that it sets out to do, which is just be this persistent threat against control and potentially recursive blocker against aggressive decks, while also threatening to just lock the game up with a big life link swing.
1: So let let me say my point of trepidation. I am with you on playing that endgame role against the aggressive decks, also being a temporary blocker. I believe it's fit for that role 100%. And I think that's why I believe in the amassed spells in general as creating a new archetype. Where I'm concerned is, does this card actually present the sticky threat against control matchups that we want it to? And I'm not sure about that yet. It's so much different then bitter blossom and i hate even referencing that card because we know this is a different card it's clear on its face this is not doing the same thing but creating an army in one card as opposed to an army that spans five or six fairy tokens is very very different and especially in game one configurations where removal is still present as soon as that creature gets a little bit larger one removal spell is pointed towards it and there goes your sticky persistent threat so it also doesn't scale all that well in multiples but all of that being said It definitely does the role of closing against aggressive decks. I also think it's important in the sacrifice context where you're just looking for fodder on a regular basis and really want to enable your Priest of Forgotten Gods or whatever other payoff you're looking for. So I'm definitely a buyer in this card. Don't let my naysaying blunt how high I am on it. It's just that's the question I really want to answer. And if that question is answered affirmatively, if this is the sticky threat against Esper and those kind of control decks, then I may actually have it too low on my list and it might deserve a higher ranking. We'll have to see how well it plays in those roles.
0: Right. And the issues we have with the card are why it's number three and not number one. Right. And it's very clear that hype has died down a lot around this card because it started at seven or eight bucks and now it's $3. dollars hmm I get that. I, I completely understand. Like th- this was a three of in a lot of my lists, not, not like a slam dunk four of, and it's possible that three was even too many. But- at the same time, I do feel like this card is going to show up in a lot of different places. If you play it in like Golgari, for example, I don't think you're going to get as much mileage out of it as if you're playing it alongside the other blue cards. However, yeah. I do think that the fact that it goes into like Judith decks, and again, maybe that deck will continue to just sit on the sidelines or whatever. But even out of like red, black, mid-range or something like that, I think that like this this card is going to get played for sure.
1: Yeah, right there with you.
0: All right, my number two is Ral's Outburst. Not on my list. Go ahead, hit us. Damn, okay. Yeah, I, was I, I, like three, lot, I, I was wondering if our top three was going to be exactly the same. So uh, Ral's Outburst is two UR instant. Ral's Outburst deals three damage to any target. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand and the other into your graveyard. I'm assuming that this is not in your top 10 because you're a Simic Nexus guy and not a Teamer Wreck guy.
1: Uh, that's probably part of it. And so I devalue this card because that's obviously it's slam dunk home, right? It's so good in that deck. And maybe that's enough to make me a teamer guy as opposed to a Simic guy.
0: Yeah, between uh, teamer wreck, the Jeskai tokens deck, which I do think is fairly real, and some playability in things like Drake and Light Phoenix decks, and then maybe even like Frilled Mystic decks. I think that that Ral's Outburst is legit. Yeah, four is a lot, and I think that's probably my sticking point,
1: and especially when you start to compare it to other options in the four-drop slot, but there's no denying this is a powerful option, and doing exactly what a deck like Teamer, Reclamation, Nexus, however you want to build it at this point, is looking for, both answering a threat and getting deeper into your deck, that's exactly what you're trying to do. And then if you're adding in things like the Ral Storm Conduit Kill, which it sounds like people are pretty high on after one day. Again, one day I wouldn't take too much from, but it's viable. It works. You occasionally kill people that way, even if it's just a backup plan, which it sounds like it often is, but copying this spell, taking out two threats, and going to look for two cards is always going to be real nice. So I, I do think the payoffs are there for Ral's Outburst. It would be one of those cards that's sitting just on the fringes of my top 10. And I think all of these cards are fairly close once we get to the middle. There's kind of one or two standouts in my eyes, and then everything else is very jumbly, not exactly clear how they should be rated. So I don't hate your inclusion of Raoul's outburst, maybe a little high for my taste, but it was just outside my top 10 list.
0: It's going to be all over the place, man.
1: I could buy that. If you're just saying in terms of raw playability, like how much of the card do we see yeah, maybe Rals is just the slam dunk card in that instance. I mean, does it spawn new archetypes or is it just slotting into those teamer decks? Do you think this card is critical to the success of something like Jeskai Guy Tokens, or is it kind of just and also ran in that kind of strategy?
0: I think the tokens deck needs some amount of two for oneing in the mid to late. Okay. So you could, you could play something like Chemister's Insight to go along with your Goblin Electromancers or whatever. I think this does a slightly better job, but as far as this in with Frilled Mystic and uh, Augur of Bolas and stuff like that, I mean, maybe that's just a bad team or rec deck, but at the same time, like I do think that that is going to be a viable thing.
1: Okay, that'll be interesting to see. All right, you're number two. Uh, Enter the God Eternals. And there's here's like my set of these three Amassed cards. My four was Commence the Endgame. Three was Dreadhorde Invasion. Two was Enter the God Eternals. That's just me buying into these mid-range Amassed decks as a real new thing you can do in this format very authoritatively. Like this is the new thing that I am excited about that I 100% believe has legs. If, there was a, if you were asking me to rank like the second new deck, I would say something like Tokens Jeskai Builds. Uh, are probably right on the fringes and also somewhere I'm going to explore very early on in the format. But this is my week one new deck, mid-range Demir mass stuff. Uh, for all the reasons we've talked about ad nauseum to this point, you are able to close the door very quickly with the life link. Uh, There's so much life gain, so much card advantage, and just so much versatility out of that army that you're getting right now. Interesting to see if we're going to go down a Grixis route eventually and do things like widespread brutality. Maybe that'll be part of the game plan, but just as it stands now, really like the options this deck is presenting and they line up so well against the existing format. And that's the key distinction for me is that I can wholeheartedly believe that this can compete and exist and adapt to the tools that are already present in the metagame.
0: Yeah, I do too. What, what do you say about like, after this, this stupid MC is over, uh, we just buckle down, try and work on Demir and get people a good list for, for Richmond for week one.
1: That sounds great. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where first thing I'm doing tomorrow is playing a bunch of Demir. It's the deck I'm excited about. So I'm sure I will come back next week and have plenty of information about exactly where the deck lies and what I've been able to figure out.
0: Awesome. You'll have a head start on me because I have to play in this tournament. But yeah, silly, uh, silly pro tour. I'll, I'll catch up quickly. I yeah. promise. I believe you. All right. My number one and See, it's seeing gotta us gotta be out. the same card, right? So it has to be. So seeing as how you had bolus on your list and you, if you did not have this card, I would just be mad. This is Liliana Dreadhorde general. Yes, that is my number one card as well. Okay. Four BB legendary planeswalker, Liliana, mythic rare, six starting loyalty. Whenever a creature you control dies, draw a card plus one, create a two, two black zombie creature token minus four. Each player sacrifices two creatures minus nine. Each opponent chooses a permanent, they control of each permanent type and sacrifices the rest. This is new mid range finisher, right? Just going to be showing up all over the place. Like even in the Judith decks, I think that this card as like a two of is worthy of consideration.
1: I don't think people are going to understand how dramatic Liliana's effect is on the battlefield until they have one in play. And then it's going to really click that this card is just completely bonkers. And it, it's really interesting to me how this affects the mid-range arms race, because so much of Soltai has been defined by crisis and how you're going to respond to your opponent's crisis. And I think Liliana might just invalidate all of that and go completely over the top. In fact, in my article this week, I proposed that you might be able to just return to Golgari and pick up matchup points in other places and just give up on that entire arms race and just be like, nope, I get to six. I play Liliana. That's more than enough for this deck. And it can definitely carry the day that way. Uh, We'll see if that proves to be true. But whether that's the case or not, it's unquestionable that a bunch of decks are going to be building around Liliana. And it just feels like it fits everywhere. If you're interested in playing a game that lasts more than five turns and have black in your deck, you're probably looking at at least a couple copies of Liliana.
0: Well, it's funny, too, because if you're planning on playing a game that lasts more than five turns, black is maybe the best color at at doing that or is like the color that has the most archetypes built around trying to go a little bit longer. So, yeah, Liliana is going to be in a bunch of places.
1: Is there any unique things you're trying to do with Liliana or is it just, just like a mid range hammer? I mean, I don't think you really have to get cute with this card, right? It just does its job incredibly well.
0: Yeah, I basically agree with that. I mean, if you're making zombies and just blocking with those and drawing cards, if you're casting this when you have a dry board and they have two reasonable threats, then you just get to wipe out their stuff. If you're just doing normal Golgari stuff, like playing some value creatures, and then playing Liliana and just kind of trying to turtle up her behind some wild growth walkers. I mean, that's fine, too. Like, I don't know. She, she kind of just does, does it all. Just even... Yeah as like a six mana wrath in control decks, kind of, I think that that's also perfectly reasonable.
1: Yeah. If you remember the play patterns behind Elspeth, six mana Elspeth, uh, I think Liliana does a lot of those same play patterns better, which is kind of terrifying because that card was an absolute beast in its format. There's so many games where you're just going to slam Liliana and your opponent's chances will completely evaporate on the spot. So I am very excited about this card. And what it can do for all of these mid-range strategies and control as well, as you mentioned. I totally viable there too.
0: Yeah, I've I've been on a pretty large black kick for standard as of late. I've been playing like a lot of black mid-range decks, whether it's like a base color or a splash color. I played Rakdos mid-range at the Invitational, I played Sultai in the last MC. And certainly with war coming out, I'm very interested in this and mass stuff. And I think Liliana does a lot of cool stuff in those decks, too. So I'm going to be playing a lot of this card. And the, the fact that uh, Amano drew the the, uh, the Japanese beautiful. promo version. So oh, my nice. God. Yeah, I, I need I, I need at least three of them, probably all four.
1: Uh, they're going to cost a lot of money because every human on the I, planet I don't care, I've man. spoken to is I don't like, care. I need this card. And I feel the exact same way. And unfortunately for me, I probably need it in foil. And I feel like that's going to cost so, so much, but, uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful card. I really love, uh, what they're doing with the Japanese planeswalkers. They're awesome.
0: Yeah, me too. I've seen less than 1% of people complaining about it and, how could you? It, it, comp- that, well, how terrible of a human
1: are you if you're complaining about those Planeswalkers? They're amazing. What are you complaining about? Well, believe
0: it or not, there are some people that don't like anime or like the art style turns them off. But
1: that's fine. I mean, like, even if you don't like it, you don't have to complain about it. Like, it's not for you. It's okay. Just move on and let well, people who you, love these things enjoy them.
0: Right. There is the whole, like, you know, hush, just let people enjoy things meme or whatever. Right. And I, I think that that's certainly applicable here. Like, it's entirely possible that there are a lot of reasonable people out there who see them. And they're just like, oh, these aren't for me, but it's like cool that everyone likes them. Sure. And at the same at the same time, it's like, y- you don't really have to participate in this. It's not like you're going to be opening them in your booster packs, right? Because you're not going to be buying Japanese products. so. Right. I mean, if, I if you're see... in Japan,
1: you have, a, I guess, a legitimate gripe, kind of, but like, I'm sure someone will trade you like, don't worry about it. You'll be able to unload it very quickly.
0: Yes. Yeah. And you probably get some value off it too, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't see what the deal is, why people would bother complaining about this. Uh, But regardless, I do think that this is like one of the most beloved things that Wizards has done recently. And it's just, I, I think it's awesome. I'm with you.
1: Uh, I'll also say, too, one final wrap up point on my top 10 list. My number five, four, three, two, and one card were all Demir cards, which is yeah. part of the reason why I'm so excited about exploring that as my starting point in the format. I just think they, they got the goods 100% in this set. Uh, and we'll see if we can make it into something exciting for constructed play.
0: Oh, yeah. By the time I got to write my Enter the God Eternals article, it was like, all right, Dreadhorde Invasion came out, then Enter the God Eternals, and then I think commenced the end game. And with each one, I was like, okay, this is nice. You know, like, this is a nice little pickup. And then at the end of it, it was like, oh, we are really doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fact that all of this stuff goes with, like, Thought Erasure and, yes, maybe uh, Enter the God Eternals doesn't have many targets if any against esper control but they'll probably be playing auger bolus and it's not the worst thing to like tag your own auger or dread horde invasion card you know and plus you're blue and black so post board you're gonna have like duress negate thief of sanity and i just feel like that's just gonna be a nightmare for post board esper
1: yeah you have plenty of cards to cut look we play dead cards sometimes it's not like your old removal spells were particularly useful against the esper decks so right. i don't think there's any reason to hate on this one
0: yeah, maybe not the best deck in best of 1, but I don't know, maybe it is if it's all like mono red and mono white again. So, yes, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. So, that wraps up our top 10. We each week solicits the wonderful folks of our game Discord channel to ask a question. We pick one of our favorites and we send them some rewards. I think uh we still have some sleeves left but we are running out very quickly and then I'll have to think of something else very cool to send these folks. But a question this week comes from Jethro and Jethro says, you always talk about how many cards didn't make it in. What card was the furthest from the top 10, but still made your long list? And I didn't make like a full list this time. There were some previous sets where I just wrote down like every card that I thought would see constructed play. And then I made a top 10 out of that. And for this, I made like maybe a top 15 or whatever and just like shaved five cards off. But the the card that I would say is probably the furthest from my top 10, just because I really want to talk about it and I don't think is going to see play and I haven't had people talk about it and the pre-order price is pretty low, is Niv-Mizzet Reborn. And I think this card could actually... Have a shot because it's like potentially just like a five mana six six flyer that has ETB draw four spells, which I think is very very powerful. And obviously, there are some considerations with the mana and everything. And some
1: considerations with the mana, he says some. about the like five a, color a couple,
0: card. a couple, you know. But realistically, it's it's very doable and. I don't know. I I think that this is a thing that I'm probably going to spend too much time working on. I don't know if you have any inclination to to brew around with this card, but I I considered writing an article about this card.
1: If nothing else, it will produce the best meme decks. I think this is like square This is a card that I see squarely targeted at like the saffron olives of the world and there's going to be something that's good that's plausible for some arena play and maybe even will reach Mythic pretty soundly and and put up some nice results. Uh, But I don't see it as something that can sustainably be tier one for a five color spell. I just want a little bit more out of the payoff, but I, I do think it's an interesting card. I think it's a fun card to figure out the puzzle of, which quite frankly, I wish there was more incentive to build around cards like that. And I don't know how you Same. create that incentive. It's it's really challenging. You know, a lot of people would point to commander formats and that's where they do that kind of stuff. And I want a little bit more consistency. So I guess like block was a decent home for that stuff, but there's no blocks anymore. So I don't know. It makes me sad that I probably won't devote much time to Niv-Mizzet because I do think it's a fun card, but... I just don't have that much time in my life and I know it's probably not going to (laughs) pay out. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see if I get some downtime and I'm able to explore this card thoroughly.
0: All right. Fair enough. So furthest card from your top
1: 10. Yeah. So I actually wrote down like all the cards I was considering, which is my usual process for doing this. And there's kind of two, maybe three that come to mind, which were right on the furthest edges and I mentioned one already in Mayhem Devil, and I think that's worth talking about just because no one else was. We'll see if that yep. is worth building around. The other two are Dread Horde Arcanist, which kind of fits in to this weirdo heroic style of deck that's going around right now. Can you make Dreadhorde Arcanist a significant enough payoff? It feels like no given context of the format, it's really challenging to invest a lot of resources into one threat and you're not going to be more efficient than mono red and you just end up a worse version of that deck. So that's, it made my list, but it's again on the outskirts. And the other one, which again, I don't feel people are sufficiently stoked enough about is Spark Harvest, which is just a really nice little removal spell that these decks with a lot of fodder picked up. and. The thing I really like about Spark Harvest, which I don't feel is getting enough press, is that it has an alt casting mode and it's expensive. I mean, you're paying five mana for your destroy target creature or planeswalker. But when that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And it's a nice option to have. And it's one that these style of cards has never really gotten before. And I think Bone Splinters saw the barest amount of constructed play. And Bone Splinters is so much worse than this card. It's just dramatically below this on power level and no one has really been interested in Spark Harvest. And I get why. There's a lot of other viable options you can use, but this is the cheapest. And if you're if you're there, take your Spark Harvest payoff and run with it and be happy you have a one mana removal spell for Teferi or for Liliana or whatever's troubling you at the moment. Uh, you're going to be pretty happy to have a Spark Harvest somewhere in your deck if you have appropriate fodder.
0: Yeah, I like Spark Harvest a lot. I think that it's gonna show up in my lists in very small numbers like as a one or a two of but certainly if you're playing against Golgari or whatever it's it's just one of the most powerful cards you can have against them because you're sacking uh, like the the first thing off Dreadhorde Invasion you're sacking the front side of Grim Initiate or whatever and you're killing a giant wild growth walker or Vivian like you're getting a ton of value out of the card it is potentially just very very powerful.
1: Yeah, I think so too. But it's it's powerful in narrow context. And that's why ultimately it was pretty far up my list. I, I mean, my potential list was only about 20 cards this time, which is really small. Uh, usually I end up with something closer to 35, 40 cards when I'm doing these top 10 explorations. So that was an interesting thing to see. And a lot of the stuff that kind of just missed, we talked about it, it was stuff that you had on your list. Yep. So They aren't too far off from being included. They're certainly there on power level to see some play. I just think maybe they're a little bit less exciting and require a little bit more effort than the cards that ultimately made my list.
0: Word. Well, I guess that is going to do it for us this week. I'm certainly excited to uh, be in SCG Richmond for first week of Standard. And I'm also just excited to be able to play with the cards on Arena once I'm not playing in this modern tournament anymore. So I have to wait a little bit longer than you. Maybe I should be the one who's frozen in ice for a few days.
1: Well, you have you have something else to do. Kind of an important task. You need to go and win Mythic Championship London, which I'm it sounds like you're super confident about as you're ready to freeze yourself in ice as opposed to participate in the tournament.
0: Oh yeah. I mean I'm probably gonna win, but it's gonna take a lot of time and You know, then I'm going to have to sleep. And then finally, finally, I will be able to log on to Arena.
1: All right. Well, get that done real quick. I will keep Arena warm for you. It'll be here waiting once you are the London Mythic Championship champion. God, I hate saying that. Isn't it awful? It's it's just terrible. I bet. I bet Autumn hates saying it, too. It's a challenging one to squeeze out. I I don't know. I'm sure actually holding the title blunts the impact of the terrible (laughs) wordplay
0: a little bit. (laughs) Mythic Championship winner. What about that?
1: Uh, it's it's
0: missing some of the panache, I think. I know, I know. All right, well, that's game.
1: Good luck.